0: Welcome back for season two of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady. This season of the podcast, we're going to bring you some exciting new guests, including faculty members and non-academic scientists. I am entering my fourth year as a PhD candidate, and I'm honestly still really unsure about what I want to do for my career. So I personally am really looking forward to talking to folks from all sorts of different areas of science to hear what their careers are like and how they got there. So stay tuned for that. It should be a great season. For today's episode, we're off to a really exciting start. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Snyder. He is the Stanford Asherman Professor and Chair of Genetics and Director of the Center of Genomics and Personalized Medicine. Mike received his PhD training at Caltech and carried out his postdoc training at Stanford. He is a leader in the field of functional genomics and multi-omics, so that means using things like transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, all those omicses to understand genomics, genetics, physiology, and health. His lab was the first to perform a large-scale functional genomics project in any organism and has developed many technologies in genomics and proteomics. He launched the field of personalized medicine by combining different state-of-the-art omics technologies to perform the first longitudinal, detailed, integrative personal omics profile of a person. And his laboratory pioneered the use of wearable technologies, like smart watches and continuous glucose monitoring, things like that, for precision health. He's also a co-founder of many biotech companies which we'll talk a little bit about in the interview. If you're interested to learn more about the cool research that Mike and his team are doing, I'm including the link to his lab website in the show notes. So I encourage you to go check that out. Mike's lab is currently recruiting folks for a research study looking to develop technology to detect COVID from smartwatch data or data from other wearables. If you're interested in getting involved, you can sign up at innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. And I'll include that link in the show notes, as well as the link to sign up for some of the other lab studies as well. So now without further ado, here's my interview with Mike Snyder. so much for being here i really really appreciate this sure um so to start out will you just say who you are what your job is and a little bit about the research that you do
1: Yeah, so Mike Snyder. I'm chair of the genetics department at Stanford University School of Medicine. I also direct the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. Uh, Our lab is all about big data and health. We're actually trying to collect all kinds of data, like people's genome sequences, uh, other kinds of measurements from their blood, urine, even their poop. We measure their microbiome and uh, do a lot with wearables and, and try and take all that data, make sense of it, try and understand what it means to be healthy, catch disease early before symptoms. And quite frankly, transform healthcare, which I think is a pretty broken system.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) Um, So, how did you first become interested in science?
1: Uh, probably from my curious mom. <laughs> I think my mom was a very curious person and instilled that upon us asking questions about how things work and why things are the way they are. Um, certainly I had a very good chemistry high school teacher. I know that got me pretty excited about, you know, doing science and hands in science, but I didn't really didn't decide to become a scientist. So sort of the end of my undergraduate career, I think, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do and I was just started working in a lab and I got very excited about it. And so that took me off to graduate school and the rest, I guess, sent me down that path.
0: Yeah. Did you think at all about pursuing an MD? Cause it sounds like your research interests are sort of along the, you know, the medical line. So did you think about that at any point?
1: No, not really. Uh, I don't know that that, um, uninterested to me, but it wasn't a driving force for me. I think, again, learning how things work, discovering fundamentals in science. I think what brought me more into this translational direction was the fact that I um, We invented a lot of technology. So backing up a little bit, people used to study genes one at a time and be one gene, one PhD, uh, a lot of work, just an error, if you will, stick was that we said, well, let's study all the genes at once, all the proteins. So it really launched a field of system biology. And that was fantastic for trying to pin down then, you know, underlying mechanism biology, we were studying chromosome segregation or cell polarity, how the cells know where to grow. Uh, and, and by looking at all the components once, you just got a much better picture. And along the way, we are inventing all these technologies, like we are the first lab to, um, if you will, map where all the they're called transcription factors. These, these key genes are uh, proteins for turning on and off your genes. We came up with methods for that, came up with methods for following all the genes at once, uh, including what's now known as non-coding RNA. So we, we invent a lot of methodologies along the way. And we realized that these could actually be quite powerful for, uh, basically applying to human health and also Mm -hmm. seeing how things I, I thought weren't quite working right in the healthcare sector, uh, I was not really involved in health. I mean, in very basic form, yes, health related search research, but not in any applied form. But we saw that these technologies we're inventing could be very powerful in that direction. And so that's what we started exploring when I moved to Sanford about now 12 years ago. It was really to do just that, take these same approaches that do now what's called systems medicine, try mm-hmm. and understand people in a much more holistic fashion than just following a few simple blood markers, some of which are not terribly useful, I would argue, uh, compared to what we're capable of doing. So, mm-hmm. so really, it just morphed in, in a natural direction. And maybe as you become more senior in your career, you like to try and have more applied impact. Uh mm-hmm. And I am in a medical school now, too. I shifted. But that's in part by design. I think we shifted from a basic science department to a medical school environment, in part, to be able to apply these methods we are inventing to human health.
0: Yeah. So at what point did your research start really looking at? the role of wearables, because I know that's a big thing that you do.
1: Yeah. So it started out, we were doing all these molecular and and they're called omics measurements where we would follow literally as many molecules as possible in people's blood, all their RNA and transcripts, again, using in some cases, techniques we had invented uh, and, and their microbiome, things like that. And then Out came these fitness trackers uh, and people were using them for just that, fitness trackers, but not much more. So they'd figure out the patterns, you know, then throw the watch in a drawer because you can figure it out pretty quickly. And we realized pretty early on that these are powerful health monitors that fit with the concept that we're not only doing big data on people, we are following them longitudinally with these molecular measurements. And so when the wearables came out, we realized, well, you can follow people continuously in real time. Mm and that's really really powerful some of the watches will measure uh, take 2.5 million measurements per day they'll take hundreds of thousands so they're measuring you constantly and 365 days a year so you're really collecting a lot of data you can really follow people's health in real time mm-hmm. so we you know made what was a probably pretty simple <laughs> i guess i don't know if shift's the right word but you know observation and boy we should take these things and try and use them as health measurements it doesn't even matter if they're perfectly accurate there some of them are quite good like heart rates very very good heart rate variability some of them maybe not so good but they they're still capable of picking up changes like there, you can now measure blood oxygen on your mm-hmm. on a fitbit watch but and and the absolute values aren't that accurate but you can see when things are shifting mm-hmm. that's the power of medicine i think that's underappreciated in medicine it's really not utilized at all that we should really be picking following people while they're healthy and then look for shifts. It's no different than, you know, driving your car, you have a dashboard on your car Mm -hmm. and it's measuring that, you know, the state of the, health of the car at all times, gasping probably the simplest, but engine lights, things like that. And so when something goes off, they do flag, um, you know, you get, you'll get a yellow light, engine lights on that something's not right. And I, I think that's really where medicine should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would argue people are more important than cars. And so it makes sense <laughs> to have, you know, health dashboards uh, for people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I feel like almost everyone I know has some sort of Apple Watch, Fitbit, Garmin, et cetera. But I don't I've never personally I've never had a doctor that like asked me for that data or wanted to see that.
1: No, and it should be a routine part of healthcare. It turns out the measurements you get from a smartwatch are much, much more accurate than what you get in a doctor's office, at least for heart rate and heart rate variability. Uh, By the way, get all your friends to sign up for our studies. We uh, we have a study ongoing now. You may or may not know to detect covid. Actually, mm-hmm. with a smartwatch and that seems to be working about works about 80% of the time we can pick up when people are getting ill at or before the time of symptoms onset some cases That's the meeting amazing. three days before symptoms onset so it's really a great early detection system not perfect but we by getting more people to sign up we hope to <laughs> get it yeah better. yeah
0: and especially with you know, testing, being variably accessible to people across the country, having other ways to detect COVID is great, too.
1: Oh, it's almost essential these days. You know, the, the gold standard's PCR. And that used to be a day to get your results back. Now, like at Stanford, the school just opened, takes three days to get your mm. test results back. And, of course, by then you could have spread it to who knows how many people. Yeah. So we really do need these real-time detection systems to have people, you know, you, you may do this, too, where they take your temperature, you know, with the uh, yeah. infrared thermometers and, and that stuff's fairly worthless when wintertime rolls around yeah. because your skin's cold and I always measure at 33 degrees centigrade. You know, I'd probably be dead <laughs> if I were really at that temperature. So that, that really doesn't make any sense. Um, So, yeah, we, we do new, need modern technologies. By the way, measuring temperature for illness, that's a 300-year-old technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes way back. Uh, And nothing wrong with it, but uh, again, we can do just so much better in today's world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So one of the questions that I had for you was, I know that, I mean, in talking to you and also from looking up what you do, that you are involved in a lot of biotech companies and you have founded a variety of companies, um, which you're the first person that I've had on the podcast who does that. So I was wondering if you could talk about sort of what that's like and then how you balance your role as a professor and also working as a founder of multiple companies.
1: Sure. So really what academic places are good at is is discovery and proof of principle. So our lab, its mission is to discover new things, invent new technologies, uh, show they work and, and then apply them to basic research problems we as we do that we recognize that some of these wouldn't some of these things be great if everybody was doing this mm-hmm. so those if it makes sense we'll spin them off as a biotech company and yeah i didn't really know much about it at first kind of piggybacked along with someone else actually when i was at yale who who got me involved in a company and that sort of taught me the ropes and so uh, basically, uh yeah, that's just what we do. We we as we see something that I think everybody should be doing or could have medical applications, we'll spin it off. And in my case, I usually team up with uh, um, someone who's more on the business side who can handle that part because I, I I can do the science. I possibly could do the business, but I don't really have the you know the interest in that. I'd rather someone else pick up that side. So it takes quite a bit of work. So at the end of the day, yeah, I've spun off I guess thirteen companies over the years. And um, they, yeah, they've all been successful, but one. Uh, and, um, yeah, they, they can, they, they're good at scaling. That's what industry is good at. And I think academics think they're good at, you know, scaling, running large projects. They're not really, um, they are for academic kinds of projects, but not really for, if you want to make a product for everyone in the world, academics are no good at that. Uh, and so that's really what businesses are good at. And so when we see something that, again looks powerful that we think lots of people we'd like to see it get out to lots of people and it's very satisfying actually when you invent a technology that you can apply for basic research so well the gosh just can go broader and, and you get it out there it, yeah it, it's kind of nice it also demonstrate it really does have utility it's not just some academic quirk yeah uh, you invent I mean, you it. you write in
0: a grant as like oh this is how is it applicable what is it is it really <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think most people don't do it because we're not trained for it uh, in academia. We're trained to be scientists, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's good, uh, but yeah, I think having a certain awareness, and I probably learned a little bit later, um, maybe earlier than most, I suppose. Uh, but um, still, I, you know, I've gotten, to be honest, I think our lab's gotten pretty good at this. Half the people who join my lab all want to start their own companies Mm. by the time they leave. So, so we try and figure out what might make a good concept uh, from things we're doing in the lab that could spin off that would, you know, to be honest, benefit the world. That's really what it's all about. Make a product that helps everyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this podcast is largely for people who are, you know, thinking about pursuing a career in science. And so I'm wondering if like, you know, having had a foot in both worlds, what sort of pros and cons you see in academia versus biotech and industry. Yeah, so
1: I mean, in pure academia, again, the motivation is is just discovering new things. And and for me, there's no better rush uh, than waking up in the morning and you know (laughs) know, getting excited about some great result that just learned about the day before. That's that's really what motivates me in academia and and. Yeah, and, and I, I don't intend on leaving it. I still <laughs> get, get very excited, about I'm just as excited as everyone else when some cool result comes out and from the lab. And and um, uh, it, yeah, sometimes it evolves, like it's an intriguing thing that you have to dig in deeper to make sure it's really real. And um, so that, that's what really motivates me in, in academia. But uh, again, there's some satisfaction to being able to, if you do make a discovery, to being able to get it out to the world. And and like when we first sequenced uh, genomes and, and then predicted risk for health, risk for disease, I should say, uh, I said, all right, I get it. This is really what you know I think everybody should be doing. <laughs> I think we should be getting our genome sequenced to be honest before we're born so you can predict disease risk. Uh and but that, that's what a company should do, not really what academia should mm-hmm. do. Once once we show proof of principle, this kind of stuff could be done. And so it it is somewhat satisfying then to build a company and of course very quickly they were 10 times better at the my lab because they just take a concept and they industrialize it, they make it so much better. And again, that's why industry is really, really good at this stuff. Mm And so, uh, and so, starting in a new biotech company, it's just it's not easier than academia. People work really, really hard when they launch us, but it is more applied. At the end of the day, you are make you have to make something somebody wants. In the old days, a lot of these biotech companies they just played around, and that was fine. And then something good would come out. These days, people don't really give you money for that kind of stuff. They give you money to, you know, within two years, be on a path to a product or have a product, uh, you know, maybe uh, what's called an alpha (laughs) product, uh, not something that's quite there, but something along the way. So anyway, that's really... where, where industry is about. And so if you, you like more applied things, and I would argue, you know, startups, uh, are a good thing to do, but don't go into industry, a new startup, assuming you'll work less than, than <laughs> academia. will not you work just as hard you just work differently. Teams are a big deal in, in companies. You have to work together. Well, as a team in academia, uh, I think people work as teams do do better, but you can get by with being pretty <laughs> autonomous and independent, mm-hmm. uh, We're kind of trained that way, Uh, not so well trained to work in teams. Industry, you have to work as a team. To to, everybody has to be pulling the boat in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And then more pharma is a little more steady industry. I I would argue they're less inventive. You know, some of them. Genentech is a very inventive place, Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of the R and D in in big pharma is fine. A lot of it's a lot more you know, standardized or industrialized. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that can be satisfying too. You know, I have friends there who, you know, who, love the fact they got some product out that's, you know, saving millions of lives. That's a pretty satisfying thing too. Uh, it, it's a very, it's much slower turnaround for that kind of gratification. Yeah. Uh, and generally uh, there are pe- plenty of people who work hard in industry. I, I don't feel like they work quite as hard as in academia or as in, um, you know, new biotechs uh, mm. because they think people, yeah, they, they probably it, it's hit a more, uh, gotta watch what I say I wouldn't call it standardized pace, but it's a just different pace.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, more stable sort
1: of. Yeah, more exactly. And, yeah. and what is good at doing is recognizing biotechs that hit their mission and buying them, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. incorporate them into the what they're trying to do. So so the whole ecosystem kind of works <laughs> mm-hmm. at different levels, with academia yeah. being the very fundamental, uh you know, these biotech startups being the next phase. And then probably uh, pharma. Um, Now, some biotechs will go on and become pharma, like Mm Angen. Yeah. Products become big enough.
0: Yeah. Do you find it difficult to balance both having a large research lab and being in charge of multiple companies?
1: No, well, I'm not in charge. I think that's one key concept. I'm a facilitator. I mean, I help start. It takes a fair amount of work to get the company launched. But once Mm -hmm. it gets going, uh, I am engaged with all my companies. uh, And, you know, I try to meet with them often once a week, often twice, you know, every other week, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So um, and it's it's again, it's pretty satisfying because they will see things out there that I wouldn't necessarily see in the academic side so they'll uh so they actually probably help give me a broader Perspective on the on the, on that whole space, but they don't take as much time. I think running a big lab, people think, well, that's a lot of work, and it is a lot of work. But it's also easier than running a small lab uh, because running a small lab, because everybody becomes much more dependent on me. Whereas in a big lab, they help each other out. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm very fortunate to have amazingly smart people in my lab. Uh, the only minuses, of course, they are here for a few years and they move on. <laughs> but yeah. that's part. Of, that's part of the process, and I, I get it, and I actually, you know, I that, that's satisfying too, right? That mm-hmm. people come in and do well and go off and launch a career either in academia or industry. <laughs> So very very uh, pleased to see that happen, but it does mean you're always reinventing and retraining folks, and that's but but if you have a big enough lab, they you know I like to think I help grease a lot of this, but but I select for amazing people who are pretty independent, and uh, yeah, and and so again, I'm probably a facilitator both in my lab and in my companies. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, a lot of people are much, much smarter than me. But I, I like to think that I probably have a little bit more experience and perhaps can add some perspective mm-hmm.
0: that's useful. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, speaking of perspective, what sort of advice would you give to people who are interested in pursuing a career in science?
1: oh yeah i'd say you know it depends where you are in, in in your career start by working in a lab if you can mm-hmm. uh a lot of people like me i didn't discover it really till after i graduated and i spent a year in a lab and i loved it so I, I took a year off before going to grad school uh and it really cemented now had i worked in a lab before that i probably would have <laughs> uh not taken that year off because would have known this area better and there 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 are a lot of opportunities out there not everybody knows about a lot of mds people with thinking about doing MDs, don't discover it till kind of late. Mm -hmm. Although I think it's a little better now than when I was, you know, an undergrad about getting the word out (laughs) on these things. So, so I would say, but in high school, we, we take a bunch of high school students, into our labs and mm-hmm. so I think that's the first step just see if science is for you and there's all kinds of science my prediction is there is science for you but it's not for everyone but um, if you're a curious person if you like discovering things it's it's uh yeah then then by all means go into it and then as far as which direction to go staying in academia versus going starting a biotech versus going to pharma that's really going to come down to personal preferences so mm-hmm. as you gain experience as you kind of figure out you know, what you like doing, if you like more applied things, well, then maybe you will do it, industry. Uh, some people actually do, do go to medical school after they get their PhD. Some people will... Um, uh, you know, go to law school, uh, but most prep stay in academia or industry. I would say so. Yeah. So you should just see what gets you excited. Some go into policy, though. Some of our top graduate students will get very excited about public policy and go take roles in that direction. So, so, but that's the power. It's the beauty of graduate school. You can learn uh, what they you give. You know, they pay you, which is <laughs> good. I wouldn't say you're paid a lot, but it's enough to live on. But you can do anything you want to do there. It's really intellectually satisfying, you're only limited by what you think of in graduate school. It's up mm-hmm. to you to decide. And it's a great way then to find yourself and discover. I think undergrad is really good that way. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, when you're in college, really you move away from home for most people for the first time mm-hmm. and you learn what it's like to be an independent person. And at the same time, you are developing your interests a lot. But in grad school, you can really develop them in, in science a lot in whatever direction you think is best for you. And there's no right or wrong to this. It's just a matter of finding the right niche for you. If you're excited about what you're doing, it's not work. It's fun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what I tell my kids every day. Yeah. I'm going to fun. And they used to say when they were little, no, no, you're going to work. Say, no, I'm going to fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's um, the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten?
1: Um, I don't know. I've had great mentors all along the way. Um I, you know, I, I've always worked with people who gave me a lot of autonomy and, and, you know, my PhD advisor was a, a, had an amazing analytical mind. So he would. You know, always we say, "Well, well, you can calculate that." When I'd ask him a question, and so you know, step back and have to rethink it and start, you know, putting down the equations. And and so, I think it really taught me to think for myself a lot and you, and hone mm-hmm. analytical abilities. And then my my PhD advisor, um, or sorry, my my postdoctoral advisor, um, guy named Ron Davis. He's here at Stanford. He's super creative. So he would always think outside the box. And so I think one piece of advice I would give if you're if you see something that doesn't make sense, even things that sort of make sense, but don't quite sit back a minute and see if there is not another explanation Uh, too much, I think, especially when you go through high school and things you're taught like this stuff is fact not fact at all. Uh, a lot of things that you're taught are just plain wrong, which is yeah. our current understanding. So, so I think think for yourself uh, and get excited about what you do. Those would probably be the two big motivators mm-hmm. uh, and things I can think of out there. So, yeah. And if you do that, you'll be happy at what you do, I think. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I'm guessing the answer to this is no, but were there any times that you considered doing something different for a career?
1: Well, I, I guess I because I came to science kind of late. Uh, I by then I knew that's what I wanted to do. So yeah. uh, before that, it's not that I was going to do anything else. I probably didn't know what I wanted to do. So it's really sort of that transition, senior year in college, um, yeah, deciding. So because once I started down this path, I really loved it, and so <laughs> for me, it's been the right path. Uh, I do see people in science who. Uh, yeah, yeah, my wife's one good example. She was, she's a fantastic uh, bench scientist, but in the end knew that she knew she kn- didn't want to work in a lab that she always wanted to go into like marketing and regulation. So she does things on the pharma side, which, uh, and she's really, really good at it. She knows all these drugs and things. I can't keep them in my head. And she <laughs> understands which ones do what and what mechanism of action. And and it's just, and she's really good at it. And she, um, yeah, it, it works for her. And I've seen that. In other situations, people who go into law or medicine who, you know, maybe they started down science, but they got this thing, their scientific uh, um, skills never go to waste. Mm-hmm. Because I think it it does teach you to think critically about things, you know, hone your analytical abilities. And you can use that in in any profession (laughs) you go forward with. And I think those are good skill sets to have regardless. And that's probably the most important thing you get out of grad school anyway, Mm -hmm. thinking like a scientist, even if you apply it in other fields and other ways. So so um, but for me, uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of locked in. I I think I thought, well, at one point really early on, I thought, well, you know, I'll do science for maybe 20, 30 years and maybe continue that and try something else, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> pretty happy with what I do. There's just yeah. too many cool things to discover and do. So
0: <laughs> I'm yeah. Pretty happy. Yeah, absolutely. were did you pursue a um like was your plan going into undergrad to do science then or
1: Uh, I think I knew I wanted to either be a math or chemistry major. Uh, I wound up being a chemistry major. So, you know, when I did my I I grew up in rural America, pretty. (laughs) uh, Yeah, not so academically oriented area, to say the least. Most people were dairy farmers. And so, uh, yeah, so when I went to college, it was uh, wasn't used to studying. That was kind of new for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I didn't study as much as certainly my classmates. So I yeah, I guess I. Um, I, but i i always liked science because of the chemistry high school teacher i had and so mm-hmm. so i think i wanted to be a chemistry major i thought about math largely because i was good at it not because i it was so interesting and so that quickly fell by the wayside uh i mean i continued to take math class but it was it wasn't going to be a vocation <laughs> mm-hmm. and then to be honest i switched to biology at the end and it's probably why my my career shift was a little bit late i i did start taking biology classes in my junior and senior year. And I thought, well, these are pretty cool. This is more interesting than chemistry. Mm -hmm. And it still had a chemical basis for a lot of what we were doing. But I liked the fact that it seemed a little more relevant. It was yeah. easier for me to see how to translate uh, science into real life things. And so in the end, I wound up going to biology grad school at Caltech. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it was taking biology sort of shifted me again and helped me home a direction to go uh, and at DNA it was brand new back then. So I, I jumped on that and that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, what was so special about this chemistry teacher that got you really interested
1: in? Um, well, to be honest, it was mostly just that it was an experimental lab. It was mm-hmm. a, a lab that um, you, you, you ran experiments in, which is a little unusual. You know, you mostly lectured at. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's and and this bad. was an advanced chemistry lab. There was a regular chemistry class. This is an extra class. And so I took this and you just filed this manual and did experiments. And I think he helped facilitate, you know, that thinking about what you could do and think about, but mostly it's just the lab class itself. That was Mm -hmm. pretty cool. And so that's really what got me as a chemistry major. And it must have affected others in my family because my brother is a chemist uh, and had the same teacher. My sister, uh, I think, started out as a chemistry major. She may have even graduated chemistry major. She's now a psychologist. So uh, (laughs) that's yeah, uh, that's sort of so, you know, it's obviously a a biology related field. So. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I mean, yeah, but it goes back to what you're talking about in terms of getting involved in lab early so you can see what it's like. Because it's different to work in a lab versus to hear a lecture about what might happen
1: when you do? Yeah, it. when you realize you can do this stuff yourself, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I think when you, if you can get real research, like uh as I said, I went up doing after I graduated, but we, we take a lot of undergrads and high school mm-hmm. students in our lab now and we put them on real projects. And again, there's no greater rush than a great result. I remember one of our biggest discoveries when I was at Yale for telling cells how to know where to grow was done by an undergraduate who mm. actually uh, worked on this. Yeah this area made a made a just fantastic discovery and that's not isolated we've had other instances of that as well so yeah
0: that's awesome. I remember, yeah, when I was an undergrad being in the lab and discovering something for the first time, I mean, now as a grad student too, it's just so exciting.
1: That it is, yeah, it, it's really, you know, it's a lot of work. Uh, I'm sure you've discovered to, <laughs> yeah. to, to do all these experiments because not every day is going to come up with a great result. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what motivates you is that, you know, at some point there in the process that hopefully you will learn something new. But also, I think if you're always, thinking about what you're doing and, and the stuff that people are, you know, in seminars and things like that. Uh, they, if you're, if you're always using your mind, uh, you're, you'll, even if you don't implement them, you can kind of make creative ideas that mm-hmm. uh, you might make as suggestions, to other people's projects. And that's pretty fun too. Yeah. Uh, so there's a zillion ideas out there that were very untapped. So mm-hmm. and that's, what's again, also exciting about science.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: All right, Stephanie. Well, it's been great meeting you. And so good luck with this.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks again to Mike Snyder for being on the show. As I said at the beginning, if you're interested in participating in the COVID wearable study that Mike mentioned in the episode, you can sign up at innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. And again, that link is in the show notes if that's easier. If you're enjoying the show, which I hope you are, please rate and review the show wherever you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach me at stempodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.